<laughs> it's not true. <laughs> Our best friends are in England. We've been back in America for six years, six and a half. Uh, our best friends are over here. And so we come whenever we can, as often as we can. It's expensive, uh, but God provides the way. I have a principle that I follow rigidly. Um, one is I don't ask publishers uh, to publish one of my books. I let them come to me. I made one exception with the book Tithing. I felt that should be done. The other principle is I don't ask anybody to invite me. But since I broke the rule with Tithing, I'm going to break the rule here. Please invite me back. In I give you, I give you 10 years, 10 years. Did you say two? Really? Witnesses. 2010. That's too good to be true. I didn't expect you to invite me so soon. Well, thank you. Louise, do we accept you? Say, I have to clear everything with her. She, she says yes. Lord, is it okay with you? Well, the, I, I, I didn't expect that. I'm kind of embarrassed that I did it now. <laughs> well, thank you. As I said to you yesterday, uh, day before, Eric Delve is pure gold. We know him very well. And we know a lot of leaders. Uh, he's one of a kind. He's trustworthy. He's honest. He's godly, he loves God, he loves the Bible. And uh, I'm not surprised that God has blessed St. Luke's, uh, he's blessed this conference. And uh, I know what uh, the 24-hour preaching uh, phenomenon meant to him a few days ago. Uh, and John, Paul, and I are just grateful that we've had input in Eric's life and in all of you. And uh, I, I hope I can get away with saying this, but it's absolutely true. When I hear you brag on John Paul, and as Eric introduced him, I swell with pride because I'm the one that told him to have John Paul in the first place. He hadn't even heard of him. And uh, so it, it made me feel very good. Well, thank you very much, Louise, and I love coming here. It's easy to exaggerate something at the moment, like you've just got up from a meal and you said, that's the best meal I've ever had in my life. Or when you're in a trial, you say, this is the worst trial of my life. So it's easy to exaggerate. But I think we've enjoyed this debtling more than ever, I can tell you that. Would you open your Bibles to Psalm 51?
We bring to a conclusion our series after God's own heart, referring to a man after God's own heart, a woman who is a woman after God's own heart. We have seen that in the case of David, he was a found man. He was a feared man. He was a formidable man. He was a fallen man. But thank God he was a forgiven man. And Psalm 51 was written following Nathan the prophet coming into David and having exposed his sin of adultery and murder. And what we read now in Psalm 51 is the response of a man, a woman after God's own heart, who has been found out. It is a great blessing to be found out. It is hurtful, it is embarrassing, and it is traumatic, but it is that which shows God really loves you. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens, He disciplines. And so says David in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion Prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your 
altar. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. A brief word of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for these days together in Detling. I ask now that you apply the words that have been spoken over these days and again this very message. And in days to come when people think they have forgotten what they've heard, we claim the promise that the Holy Spirit would bring to our remembrance what we've heard and grant that in days to come that these messages will go off like a time bomb and be relevant a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, as they are right now. And so I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross 2,000 years ago to be applied by your Spirit to our hearts, our minds, our perception that we will receive what you have intended for us and cleanse my tongue that I will be enabled to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said, that this will bring great honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. I told you yesterday that when we had a series of messages on the life of David, we took a whole year in the life of David at Westminster Chapel, that when I came to the part after Nathan told David of his sin, the sword would not leave his house, and I knew what was coming, I decided to stop. It was a mistake, and thankfully, the Holy Spirit intervened, and I kept the series going, and it was the latter part that gave more blessing to our people than anything I had preached in the life of David. I wasn't prepared for that. And it just lets me know that the same God who loved David and chose him loved him just as much after he fell. And there will be those right now, we will not know who they are. I do not want to know who you are. But you know what it is to have let God down. And the immediate temptation, because the devil, who is the great accuser, will remind you of your failure and make you think that you're not loved anymore. That's the devil. And you need to know that God loved David as much as when he sinned as he did as when he was carrying the ark into Jerusalem. And so there are high water marks in our lives when we feel so good, and, and it's wonderful to have that. And that's what we want, and that's what I long for. But there are times when we equally need to know that when we have failed, let God down. We are loved just as much because we're men and women after God's own heart and we're loved with an everlasting love. Now, there was a verse that I just read that I want to focus on and the more I've thought about this last day when I want to make every word count and, and I want to say everything that I'll be glad 
uh, six days from now that I said, this verse in verse 14 of Psalm 51 focuses on an aspect of our lives when we have let God down that I have a feeling will be relevant for somebody here. David said, save me from blood guilt, O God. Let me tell you what that means. How many of you, not asking for a show of hands, it's a rhetorical question, but how many of you have said, I know God forgives me. No problem there. The problem is I cannot forgive myself. And I can tell you, this is a problem that many, many people face. I've had countless people come in to see me in the vestry. Help me, RT. I know God forgives me. I cannot forgive myself. I received an unsolicited email about four years ago uh, from a man who thanked me for my book, Total Forgiveness. And he said, it helped me no end, but... Would you please, 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 as soon as possible, write a book that will help me to forgive myself? Because my book, Total Forgiveness, had not done that for him. I knew this was right to do, but I had a problem. I had a serious problem. There was a skeleton in my cupboard. How dare I write a book on this when I would say all the right things when I hadn't done this. And it goes back a number of years ago, and I'm going to share it with you openly today. In 1973, when Louise, our son, we call him T.R., by the way, Robert Tillman II, we tried calling him Robert, we tried calling him R.T., we tried everything. Somebody said try TR and it stuck. So that's what we call our son, TR and Melissa. The four of us journeyed across the Atlantic, came to settle in Oxford, uh, where we would be living for the next three years. The first day I went in to see my supervisor at Oxford University, Dr. Barry White. He gave advice that I wasn't expecting from an academic. Here's what he said. Don't forget your children. These years at Oxford will go by quickly. You won't get these years back. Don't forget your children. But I did. We reckoned that the sooner I get the work done, then the sooner we could get back in America, and then I would have time for the kids. Now, that was our reasoning. TR would pray grace at the table. God, thank you for the food and help Daddy to get his defilled so we can go back to America. We live to get home. And I would spend what seemed like 25 hours a day in the Bodleian Library uh, learning everything about John Calvin and the Puritans and I had them running out of my ears and all we wanted to do is get that done and then we're going to get back to America 
and we'll have time for the children. Three years up, thesis finished. I was invited to preach at Westminster Chapel. It was to be a one-off thing. Lo and behold, end of the day, 12 deacons marched into the vestry, asked me to stay. I come home to Louise, I said, what are we going to do? With they want us to stay. The next day, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and his wife drove to see us, asking us, please stay, you have nothing to lose. We had an agreement, we'll, we'll stay six months. But then after three months, they began to say, look, please don't leave, please don't leave. And they voted on us to be the permanent minister. 92% of the vote, good vote. Louise and I said, what do you think? Well, we'll stay one year. Never will forget after that, T.R. coming up to me with tears. said, Daddy, you said we were going back to America and we're still here. I could not look at him in the eye. I spent the next 25 years putting the church first, sermon preparation first, thinking I was putting God first. Now, 25 years later, time to retire. I'm invited by the Billy Graham organization to uh, be interviewed for a video that they were going to use to show to ministers all over the world. I wasn't the only one. They had Richard Buse was asked. There were several London ministers invited just to be interviewed. And they asked me questions like, how do you prepare your sermons? What is your view of the Holy Spirit? What's it like for an American pastoring in London? And then they said, well, now that's 59 minutes. We've got one minute left. Uh, how shall we use that? Uh, Dr. Kendall, tell us about your family. I said, wait, wait, stop. Don't, don't film here. Because on this, I have been a failure. Utter failure. I've put sermon preparation first. Church first. Thinking I was putting God first. I now believe, had I put my family first... I would have preached just as well. But I can't get those years back, so ask me something else. They filmed that. It was the only part they used. <laughs> it's all right if it helps other ministers to warn them. But listen, you've no idea the guilt the agony, the pain, the hurt I've felt over the years, especially at the end of 25 years. Our son now is married, happily married in Florida. Our daughter now lives in Dallas. And I look back on those years in London, it's a blur. I can see myself working on sermons and writing books and and in the vestry seeing people preaching. Where was I as our precious children were growing up and 
I cannot tell you how awful I have felt. And so this man says, write a book telling me how to forgive myself. He didn't realize how much I needed that book. But God used that man whom I've never met. Forced me to do something long overdue. And what I was able to see, and this has happened since our retirement, while living in America, something happened to me. It is so wonderful. And if I can get this over in the next few minutes, and I can pass it on to you, somebody out there is going to be set free. Because you are looking at a man who has totally forgiven himself. I've done it. I have given myself a gift I don't deserve. And I have forgiven myself for this failure. And that is what God is saying to you today. You, a man, a woman after God's own heart. It could be that what you have to forgive yourself for would seem a lot worse than mine. Who's here today? You have to forgive yourself for letting God down. You have to forgive yourself for that sexual promiscuity. The abortion. The way you abused your body. The way you gave advice and it ruined another person's life. Betraying your best friend. We could go on and on and on. I'm here today to tell you that as we are required to forgive others who have hurt us, And those who have been despicable and hateful and unjust, but set them free, let them off the hook. That's what we're required to do. I haven't gone into that this year, but it's something I emphasize wherever I go. It just didn't seem that the text called for that, so I stayed with the the text. But just remember, you and I are required totally to forgive those who've hurt us totally forgiving ourselves is the same exact thing. I make a choice because total forgiveness is a choice. You don't wait until you feel led to forgive somebody else. God says, do it. And it's an act of the will. So, when it comes to forgiving yourself, although you blush to do it, And you say, I don't deserve this. How dare I, in one stroke, just forgive myself? Because you need to know that David had a lot on his plate now. Here was one God had been so good to him. Chosen from the sheep pens. Overlooked his father's neglect. And all that the brothers felt. God enabled David to kill Goliath. God enabled David to escape Saul for 20 years. His time had come. He's king of Judah. He's king of Israel. He conquers Jerusalem. He gets the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. There wasn't a Philistine around that he couldn't kill, get rid of. It was amazing. 
And David had so much to be thankful for. And perhaps you know what it's like to feel so indebted to God. How could David take any credit for what had happened? All the glory would go to God. That should make him doubly grateful, trebly grateful. He's certainly not going to let God down after God has been so good to him. And not only that, he had all the wives he could want. He had all the concubines. And as Nathan the prophet said to him, if you'd asked for more, I would have given you that too. But that wasn't enough. He had to have another man's wife. And then what they thought would be an afternoon affair was complicated by the fact that she now had a baby coming. And so he tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah the Hittite home to sleep with her. Then no one would know who the father was, but Uriah wouldn't do it. And then David has Uriah killed. And now God sends Nathan the prophet to say, God has forgiven your sin, you're not going to die because by the law he should have died. God forgave him his sin, but says Nathan the prophet, you will have to live with the consequence of your sin. And so with all of us, God forgives us our sin, but we can't erase what we've done. And Nathan said, the sword will not leave your house. And so you have the situation of his own sons, Amnon, and then Absalom, later Adonijah. David was arguably the world's worst parent. He totally neglected bringing up these boys as he should have. It was as though he was someplace else. And so all that happened, you have to read it for yourself, starting with 2 Samuel 13. And then when his own son Absalom takes over the throne and David is in exile and David is feeling the pain of what he's done, how his life is in shambles. Here's a man now who must forgive himself. And perhaps you to, today, you've got this enormous guilt. You accept that God forgives you. But if only you could forgive yourself. Let me define what we're talking about. As God has forgiven me totally, and I've forgiven others, I equally let myself off the hook. Or take the words of Jesus in John 6, 37. Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. What that means is when you forgive yourself, do not judge yourself and you won't be judged. Do not condemn yourself, you will not be condemned. Forgive yourself and you will be forgiven. And there's something that I have learned in recent years. And I'm going to come clean with you. I'm embarrassed to admit to this. I'm known as a theologian. 
What I share with you is ABC theology. Why would I, at my age, I'm 73 years old, I was 70 when this breakthrough came, to think at the age of 70, I start applying the ABCs of why Jesus died on the cross. Where have I been? So I'm embarrassed to admit it. But I'm telling you, if you can see this, whatever age, if you're young, take it now. And understand, there are reasons you should forgive yourself. Reason number one, it is precisely what God wants you to do. Now, funnily enough, this is where I had a problem. Again, I blush to admit it. I should have known better. But when I had the breakthrough on this, I was set. This is my problem. I kept thinking, having watched our children grow up, and after 25 years, how dare I, in one stroke, let myself off the hook? That's not fair. I need to do penance. I need to repent. I need to make it up to them. I need to, to start being the kind of father that they needed. But then how are you going to do that when they've moved away? And then I've been there. And I saw something. And it is so wonderful. And it's this. This is what God wants you to do. RT, I'm telling you, I want you to do it. As a matter of fact, if you want to please me, you will do it. And it's on this basis. What do you suppose the blood Jesus shed on the cross meant? Let me teach you two little theological words. You've probably heard them. Expiation, propitiation. What's the difference? Expiation. That means atonement. That's what the blood does for us. Washes away our sins. Propitiation. That is what the blood does for God. It turns away His wrath. And so when Jesus died on the cross, not only are our sins washed away, but the blood that He shed totally, absolutely, completely, and eternally satisfies His justice. Therefore, how dare I think there's something I can do to add to that? It came to one thing and one thing alone. Do I believe in the power of the blood of Jesus or not? And I was on the spot to put up or shut up to show I really do believe this. And it was a matter of humbly, though I blush, saying, Lord, I accept it. That though I have let you down, I've let my children down. I now affirm the blood your son shed, and I accept it. I'm not only totally forgiven by you, but I forgive myself, and I let myself off the hook and God said, good, this is what I've been wanting you to do. And I have not been the same since. Reason number one, it is what God wants you to do. 
And I'll go further than that. It is disobedience not to do it. How dare you think there's anything you can add to what Jesus did for you on the cross. Nothing can improve on what he did. And so all you can do is just say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Why should you forgive yourself? Because that's what God wants you to do. Reason number two, because that's precisely what the devil doesn't want you to do. The devil does not want you to forgive yourself. Feeling guilty today? The devil says, good. In bondage today? Devil says, good, I love it. And you need to know, not forgiving yourself plays right in to the devil's job description. He is called the accuser of the brothers. That's what he does. But when you accuse yourself, you're doing the devil's job for him. He can go on holiday. He says, I don't have to bother with you. You're doing it for me. And so when you're going around with this guilt trip, beating yourself black and blue, feeling awful, feeling horrible, thinking that somehow this is pleasing to God, I want you to know you're playing right into the devil's own work. Forgive yourself is what God wants you to do. Forgive yourself is what the devil doesn't want you to do. Reason number three, you will be given inner peace and freedom from the bondage of guilt. You see, here's the thing. As Christians, we know we're not supposed to feel guilty. The trouble is, we do feel guilty. Now we feel guilty because we feel guilty, and it's worse than ever, and we play right in to the devil's accusation. When you give yourself that gift you don't deserve, all because you are affirming what his son did on the cross, it will bring you inner peace. The degree forth to which you forgive yourself will be the degree to which you accept your calling and are used of God. You've no idea how many Christians don't grow in grace because they're still struggling with whether they've been accepted by God. You know, a few weeks after I began the ministry at Westminster Chapel, I had a man come into the vestry to say, I have a problem with assurance of salvation. A lot of people in those days had a problem with assurance of salvation. Won't go into why, but they did. Well, I showed him that Jesus died for him on the cross, and that's where you get your assurance. And so he left. He said, thank you, I feel a lot better. A few weeks later, he was back again. Same problem. I said, when I remember what I told you, yes, but if that's true, then what about this? He was kind of a brainy, cerebral person. And uh, so I helped him, and after a few minutes, he said, oh, well, now that's, that's good. I feel much better. On he goes. Six months later, comes back again. And uh, same problem. I said, by the way, uh, where is your membership? I'm not a member of any church. So you're not even a member here. No, uh, I'm praying about that. I need to get this sorted out. 
when I get this sorted out, then I'll be able to get involved in the church. Six months before I retired, 25 years later, he's an older man, same exact problem. Not sure he was saved. The devil loved it. The thing is, it wasn't a church member all this time, not involved in the church. Still said, when I get this solved, it's kind of like my own excuse. When we get to America, then we're going to have time for the children. We never got back to America. You can't get those years back. The truth is, the truth is, when you are still worried about the most elementary thing, you wonder why you don't get involved in the church. The devil loves it like that. It is essential that you accept your acceptance. That God loves you in the person of Jesus who died on the cross. And when you see this and you forgive yourself, things turn around. Reason number five, it will help you love people more. It's amazing how there are those who just can't love people. And the reason is they're preoccupied with their own problem. And they never get around to be involved in other people's problems. They've still got their own. Reason number six, people will like you more. You say, well, I don't care what people think about me. You lie. <laughs> of course you care. Does it not matter to you when you walk in the room, it's like the lights turn out? Does it make you feel good when you walk in the room, everybody goes, oh, no. You don't want that. But you see, when you're preoccupied with yourself, and as soon as you sit down next to somebody, you start saying, here's what's wrong with this church, and here's what's wrong with this, and you, and you just don't like anybody, and you're negative. Forgive yourself. People will like you more. Reason number seven, by the way, there are ten. Reason number seven, you will fulfill what God has in mind for you and keep you from being paralyzed by the past. Reason number eight, your own health may be at stake. Now, this is important. Did you know there are non-Christian organizations raised up in England and America that help people to forgive they're not using the Bible. They're not using Jesus. They're not using the Sermon on the Mount. They found out that holding a grudge is injurious to your health. And so holding a grudge leads to arthritis, high blood pressure, kidney disease, heart disease. I'm not saying for a minute if you have these problems that this is the reason, but sometimes it is. In the same way when you don't forgive yourself, you turn inward that grudge and can't like yourself and can't enjoy life and it literally cripples you physically. Who knows but what? By forgiving yourself and today giving yourself a gift you don't deserve that you can reverse the process that has led to your condition and you start getting well just because you affirm the blood shed on the cross and say, I know God forgives me. It could start happening today. Reason number nine, your mental and emotional health could be at stake. Dr. Frederick Pearls, who was an atheist, humanistic psychologist, said... 
I could cure any psychopathology in 30 minutes if I could get my client not to feel guilty. And so we could spend a lot of time on this point. I've written a book called Totally Forgiving Ourselves. I go into this song, how your mental state can be all twisted around simply because of guilt. Guilt, the common denominator of all psychopathology. When God wants to set you free. And reason number 10, your spiritual state is at stake. Now let's move on. Here's an important clarification. You may wish I'd moved right to this point now because it's, it's very helpful. When I wrote the book, wrote the manuscript, sent it to my friends, I sent it to them for one reason. I wanted help. I didn't want their praise. I literally wanted their criticism because I said, I want to get this right, so please help me. Well, I wasn't prepared for the response. One after another wrote back and said, R.T., this book has helped me. Many said, I didn't know I even had a problem with this. <laughs> I'm so glad I read this book, and it was this point that for many set them free, and it's this. Important clarification between true guilt and false guilt. True guilt and pseudo-guilt. Pseudo-guilt comes from the Greek word pseudos that means lie. It is guilt God did not put there. It is guilt that you let drive you mad and it didn't even come from God in the first place. So the rule is, do not be controlled by pseudo-guilt. Let me give you some examples of pseudo-guilt. I turned down an invitation to preach that I don't feel led to accept. Uh, and then the people uh, write me back and say, look, you, you have to come because God told us to write you. Now I'm feeling guilty. If I say no again, and I'm going to make them feel they're not hearing from God. And so I'm in a no-win situation. If I accept their invitation, I'm not being true to myself, and I'll be mad because I'm going. If I turn them down, I've let them down, and I've hurt their feelings. It's all pseudo-guilt. It's not guilt God put there. Or a person uh, wants me to give a commendation for their book, and I read it. And it's total rubbish. What do I do? I write them a letter and say, I'm sorry. And I'm feeling guilty. I don't want to hurt them. And now they feel horrible. But it's pseudo-guilt. Or here's an example. Just before we retired, one of our deacons at Westminster Chapel bought me a new motor for our boat so I could go out and fish. I'd sit at the computer and look at that boat in the water waiting for me to go out in it but I couldn't go fishing because I had so many emails and so many books to write and I'd feel guilty because I wasn't in the boat. Then I say, well, I'll go fishing so I can tell him I'm using the boat. And the whole time I'm out fishing, I thought I ought to be back getting these emails done and <laughs> writing these books. So I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. It's all pseudo-guilt. I could go on and on. A person comes up to me and says, 
you went right by me and didn't speak to me. Well, I said, I didn't see you. But now I feel guilty I didn't see them. And I feel guilty that they feel so insignificant that I didn't see them. Or a person says, R.T., you never come to see me anymore. Oh, well, I'll go see you. And I go by and spend an hour. And after an hour, I say, well, it's been great to be with you. And they say, leaving so soon. And I think, oh, no. You know, pseudo guilt. Now, it is not a sin to have false guilt. Because the origin is the flesh. It's the devil. But it becomes a sin when you know it is pseudo-guilt and you keep on feeling guilty. When you recognize that this guilt is not from God, do not dignify that guilt. Ignore it. Reject it. Resist it like you would resist the devil because the devil will ride on top of that pseudo-guilt and drive you crazy and it, then it becomes a sin because you now let it happen to you. Don't let it happen. Now, here's the irony. Even though we call it pseudo-guilt, it is often more real than true guilt. As a matter of fact, true guilt you often don't even feel. Pseudo-guilt is what you feel. Do you know, though it's not a sin to have false guilt, you can have what the Puritans used to call an overly scrupulous conscience. Did you know there was a man in the Bible who lost his life because he had an overly scrupulous conscience? That means you just let anything bother you and you worry more about what people think. You know who it was? Uriah. David brings him home from the battle. Says, Uriah, you deserve a weekend with your wife. Enjoy a weekend with Bathsheba. He says, I couldn't do that. My fellow soldiers are in the battle. And here they are fighting and some losing their lives. How dare I come home and have a weekend with my wife when my fellow soldiers, no, I can't do it, I can't do it. David had him killed. He was more worried how it would appear. Oftentimes we are driven totally by what they think. And God says, it's what I think that matters. Now, another irony. Pseudo-guilt we feel, true guilt we don't feel, unless the Holy Spirit comes alongside. What's true guilt? That's culpability toward God. That is sin. Some of you could have pre-conversion guilt, things you did before you were saved. But that is under the blood. But then if you're like me, your problem isn't pre-conversion guilt, but post-conversion guilt. In my case, I was saved when I was six years old. And I can't remember a lot of wickedness I did before I was six. I remember feeling guilty that I sassed my parents and confessed that to God. If only that's all I had done since I've been saved. And yet the irony is, true guilt 
we don't even feel. Those people who weigh knee-deep in sin often feel nothing. David went two years. Thought he got away with it. That's the irony. True guilt, you don't feel it. Or to put it another way, the guilt that ought to bother us doesn't. And the guilt that shouldn't bother us does. This is part of the human condition. But yet there's one more interesting irony. Pseudo-guilt is the hardest to deal with. True guilt is the easiest. You know why? Because there's good old 1 John 1, 9. True guilt. In one stroke, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. True guilt is dealt with with the blood. And you get over it just like that. Pseudo-guilt is the hardest to deal with. And this is where you need to recognize the devil, the great accuser. The devil is a liar. He will bring to your mind things that you have done. Here are the three R's of spiritual warfare. Recognize, refuse, resist. Recognize. This is the devil. This is pseudo-guilt. This is not God. Re recognize, refuse, don't think about it. Don't even let it enter your mind. Don't even have conversations with yourself. Resist. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. My time is up. Many ways of forgiving yourself at a different level. You accept your creation your environment, the way God has made you. And you see God's hand in it all. But I close with this. The family secret. Romans 8, 28. By the way, thank you for coming to, to have me sign a book, all three of you. <laughs> no, there were more. Thank you. I notice, you notice I sign it, Romans 8, 28. My verse, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Whatever has happened, God has a way. I don't know how he does it. Don't try to figure it out. That he will make your past look good. Now, forgiving yourself is not justifying yourself. When you forgive others, you don't condone what they did. You forgive them. And so when you forgive yourself, you don't justify yourself. Or to put it another way, the fact that something works together for good doesn't mean it was right at the time. What David did was wrong. It was wicked. It was evil. There was nothing right about it. But when you look at Matthew chapter 1, when's the last time you read the first chapter of Matthew? I suppose the most boring chapter in the New Testament. The reason we don't give Matthew to a new Christian 
is that we don't want them to get demoralized the first five minutes because it's all about the genealogy and the lineage, the begats, the begats. So we give him Mark, Luke, John, not Matthew, but have a look at it. Because when you get to verse 6, in the genealogy of Jesus, would you believe he even mentions Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, God could have had the Messiah come through other wives of David. But as Eric pointed out the first night, this was God's plan all along. And so when you read the genealogy of Jesus, you wouldn't have known all that lay behind it. God has a way of making everything in the past appear that that's the way it was supposed to be. The fact that it works together for good doesn't mean it was right at the time. And so when David prayed in Psalm 51, save me from blood guilt, he says, I must forgive myself as well as to know you will blot out my transgressions. And that is what God is saying to you. Give yourself a gift you don't deserve. I'm going to take one more minute. I'm going to ask nobody leave, but let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, would you graciously take this word and apply this word by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now look at me. In 30 seconds from now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to forgive yourself if you need to. I'm going to ask you to stand. You say in front of everybody, yes. Well, they'll know I've had a problem. Yes. But right now, you're tired of this guilt. And you're not going to let what people think drive you in 10 seconds. If you're ready to give yourself a gift you don't deserve... And you're going to let yourself off the hook. Five, four, three, two, one. Stand to your feet. Glory to God. Let yourself off the hook. Now, put your hands before the Lord like this. Repeat after me. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for the blood you shed. Thank you for forgiving me. I now forgive myself. I am free. Thank you for your patience with me. Welcome, Heavenly Dove. Come down and remain. In Jesus' name. One more thing. I preached this sermon in an Anglican church in North London last December. And I felt led to do what I'm going to do now. I received a letter two months later from a person that was there who said, I was deaf in one ear and totally deaf in the other. And after that night, I got my healing back. What I said earlier about your physical condition could be at stake. By forgiving yourself, it could be you reverse the process. I'm simply going to say, in Jesus' name, be healed. Anybody here who needs to be healed right now, would you raise your hand? 
In Jesus' name, be healed. In Jesus' name, be healed. God bless you. Go in peace.